Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsoring partner, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. CBME has worked over the past decade to support black men and boys to provide them the right word or the right person at the right time on their journey towards realizing their full potential. I value CBME's efforts, their focus, and the investments that they have made to define this new field for black male achievement and to rewrite the narrative that we want for our country. If you've not yet done so, I urge you to visit tbpod.com slash partners today and learn more about CBME and consider joining their membership and investing in the future of our black men and boys. You're listening to the trailblazers.fm podcast, where we'll explore the stories of today's successful black professionals, entrepreneurs, and leaders. Join us to access the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished professionals and come away with the know-how, confidence, and motivation you'll need to blaze your trail. And now here's your host, Stephen A. Hart. Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Trailblazers.fm. I'm your host, Stephen A. Hartz. And for the month of September, we have been celebrating Black Male Achievement in partnership with our sponsoring partner, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. All month long, we're featuring five trailblazers who are doing awesome work in and around the Black Male Achievement space. And our guest for today is A. Nicole Campbell. And this is where I'm doing something a little bit different and I'm accustomed to, and you're accustomed to really. I wanted to have my dear friend, CEO of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, Mr. Sean Dove, to come on and introduce us to Nicole, who also goes by Nick. So Sean, do us a solid and tell us a little bit more about Nick. Wow, Stephen, I just want to say that Nicole is one of the baddest women on the planet, one of the baddest sisters on the planet. And I'm not just saying that because she is a board member of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. First met her when she was the deputy counsel at the Open Society Foundations. This is a sister that is a graduate of MIT. She's an attorney. After she left OSF, she went on to be the operating lead of Ray Diallo's Family Foundation. And she is someone that's committed to our people. She's just started her own firm, Build Up Advisory. And her mission is really to build the infrastructure and capacity and what she calls something brave infrastructure design for organizations in philanthropy and the social sector, not exclusively, but mostly led by Black people. And she's just been a valuable asset to my life and to the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. And I can't wait to hear her story on this show. Sean, thank you so much for that introduction to Nick. Before we dive in and chat with Nicole, I wanted to give a special big ups to one of our Blazer Nation listeners, Camilla Z, who left us a five-star rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts that was titled Uplifting. Camilla's review reads, I'm so encouraged, motivated, excited, and uplifted as I hear Stephen share our brothers and sisters' stories. Listen, I appreciate you, Camilla, for taking the time to leave us that review and that rating. And for the rest of our listeners in our Blazing Nation community, if you've not left us a review over on Apple Podcasts, if you listen on an iPhone and in the app, please do us a solid. Hop into your Apple Podcasts app, search trailblazers.fm like you're looking us up for the very first time. I want you to click on our podcast cover art, scroll down to where you see the ratings and review section. And look for a link there titled Write a Review. If you click on it, 
I want you to go ahead and use that space to share your thoughts and tell us what you have learned by way of listening to this podcast. I'm praying and I'm hoping that you're going to leave us a five-star review, but I'm more concerned about you just leaving what you feel is just, right? And what you've gained from listening to this program. We are right now, last I checked, we're at 185 ratings. And I'd love to see that number go over 200 before the end of the month. So help a brother out. (laughs) That said, grab a pad and a pen, open your favorite note-taking app. Let's get set to receive today's mission feel from our featured trailblazer, A. Nicole Campbell. Nick, welcome to Trailblazers.fm. Thanks so much, Stephen. I'm so excited to be here. I am excited to be having this chat with you tonight. And I'd love to kick things off where we do all our conversations. And so I want to know what unexpected blessings or opportunities that you're most grateful for in your life right now. Yeah, I think it's probably a cliche for me to say this, but I, I really am so thankful and grateful to have my two little girls. I'm a mom of a four-year-old and an 18-month-old. Preach. (laughs) And I mean, they have really just aligned up my priorities in my life. Mm -hmm. They have made me, I used to ask myself the question, what could I be? And they made me change that question to how good could I become? Mm. And they've really just clarified my life for me. And so I'm so grateful for having them in my life and for trying to aspire to be the best mom that I can be for them. And I think that once I use that as my umbrella, like how do I show up for them? Mm. Everything else just sort of trails in that place. So I'm super grateful for them. I've said it many times on this podcast, but I'll say it again. Parenting is the hardest job in the world with Mm -hmm. no prior work experience, right? That's right. That's (laughs) right. And it's super rewarding. Yes. Super rewarding. I've definitely turned into one of those parents. It's like, do you know what they did today? Do you want to see a picture? (laughs) Well, you're definitely in that phase, right? 18 months. I mean, every, every two weeks is different. That's right. Can I just make a recommendation to you right here? And I I said this to parents all the time, and it should be something you do for both kids because time flies, right? And before you know it, they grow out of these different phases. Mm -hmm. So especially right now, while you have a four-year-old, 18-month-old, highly Mm -hmm. recommend, and for all our listeners, if you have young ones, do this. It's one of the best things we have done for our kids is with the videos we're capturing and you have so many videos in your phone, right? That's right. Have a private YouTube channel, like not even unlisted, like private, like load them to different playlists that are private in your YouTube Mm -hmm. account, right? Mm -hmm. And what I've done is during the holiday season, I'll just throw them on on the screen and we can look back over the years, right? At certain levels where you just have them streaming or maybe you have them in a folder in your iCloud and you can stream mm-hmm. through Apple TV, but archive those memories for them. Yeah. And I tell you, man, it's so many gems when you, you look back at, you know, a moment when they were 18 months old yes. and now they're five, right? Yes. My daughter at one point was like, hey, you know, she used to sing this Bob Marley song and now she's like, oh, I don't, I don't ever sing Bob Marley. <laughs> and I'll bring up the video. <laughs> You're like, actually. Yeah. I digress. See, you caught me talking about kids right here. Well, that's a good idea. Thank you. So let me ask you, where are you originally from? 
I'm originally from Barbados and I grew up in Grand Cayman in the Cayman Islands and moved back to Barbados for a few years and then moved to the United States and we lived in the Bronx. Wow. How long have you been in the States? A long time. Since I was about 12. Yeah. So, so many years. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Realizing just how long I've been here as well. Right? <laughs> Growing up, did you always want to study law? I wanted to study law, but that was really based on my understanding of what a lawyer was. And that was really like LA Law. Do you remember that show? Yeah. Like, <laughs> so it was like really just seeing lawyers on TV and saying, oh, I want to do that. And not really mm-hmm. having an understanding or, or appreciation of what lawyers really did. But I always thought that I wanted to do that, like what I saw on TV. And it's funny because I'm not that kind of lawyer, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not the lawyer that shows up in court. Right. I'm not a litigator and arguing cases, but from what I knew about the law at that young age, I wanted to be a lawyer. Did you have any lawyers in the family? No lawyers in the family. Wow. Hence the LA law. Yeah. Being. <laughs> and, and of course, having Caribbean parents, that fits right in the mold of what they want us to become, right? That's Law- right. Lawyer, doctor. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I think that my parents actually, they really set the foundation for hmm. what I ended up being. Right. Yes, I ended up being a lawyer, but I think my father really brought like a sense of adventure and mm. that pursuit of learning just to always be ever learning and stepping into the unknown mm. he was a teacher and you know he was going off to get his masters he was trying to travel the world wow. and he just really wanted to instill that in both me and my sister and my mother was very education focused like you know you have to be focused on school and you know you can only achieve if you have that education and that kind of foundation And so I think just putting both of them together and their aspirations for us is how I pushed my way through. And I said, you know, I want to go to college. I want to go to law school. I want to keep learning. And I want to be in a profession where I'm able to work with others and, you know, be happy, pursue Mm -hmm. happiness. So you'd say that they definitely had a big influence on on your success in school. And I was looking at that, right? Like, what might have positioned you to be able to get into MIT, which is right. <laughs> so very difficult of a school to get into, right? Yeah. It's just, it's really just focused on, you know, when you have a mom who is present and is saying education is so important mm-hmm. and this is how you can achieve anything, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's the one thing that no one can take from you, right? If you have that education, you have a strong foundation, you can pretty much go off and do anything. And it was also something that my father instilled in us as well. And so just having that kind of strong work ethic, mm-hmm. and focus on education, you know, you have that in high school and you work really hard. And I got into MIT and, you know, you just, you just keep pushing forward. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they were encouraging, but what did that environment like MIT, right? Mm-hmm. I imagine that that was very challenging. And probably a level up, right? In in terms of the pressure. How did that prepare you for some of the challenging roles that you later took on with Open Society Foundations and Dahlia Philanthropies? I think what MIT did was, I think in a lot of schools, in elementary school, in high school, the learning is very like, you memorize, you apply, Mm -hmm. you get a good grade. And I think going to MIT, it wasn't that approach. It was really about you learn 
and you apply it in a different way. It's not about memorizing and then sort of repeating or regurgitating the answer. It was about taking what you learn and then stretching to Mm. see how you would apply it in different situations and different scenarios. So it was definitely new for me in terms of learning. Before that, I was very used to like, you know, you memorize this, you make sure that you read this thing. And usually the questions were based on that. And MIT was a completely different ballgame. And Mm. I think what they did is it prepared me to step into situations with a fundamental or a foundation level of understanding and be able to apply that in different settings, right? Mm -hmm. What it set me up to be essentially is a problem solver that comes to problems with different levels of expertise and experience Mm. to bear on how I then solve that problem, right? So it's no longer, I'm a lawyer that comes to the problem and gives you my legal opinion. Mm -hmm. I'm a problem solver that happens to have this legal experience and expertise. And I really think that that education at MIT set me up for that kind of experience. That's very interesting. So today, after spending some time in working for two billionaires, right? (laughs) You decided you wanted to kind of set your own path, right? So you're Mm -hmm. you're today founder and CEO of BuildUp Advisory Group. I want you to tell our community a little bit about BuildUp and your motivation for starting this project. Yes. So BuildUp Advisory Group is an advisory firm that specializes in infrastructure design. And really what we do is we focus on how do we build out the organizational infrastructure of philanthropies and nonprofits. And what that really means is I spend a lot of time with leaders of these organizations and philanthropists that want to create these kinds of organizations or philanthropies, helping them set up the foundations so that they can deliver on their mission Mm. and they can make sure that their programmatic work is supported. And I do it through a three-part lens, which is I look at governance. Is the governance structure set up in a really good way? Are your boards set up to really be engaged and provide adequate oversight over your organization? The second part is looking at grant making. If these organizations are engaged in making grants to other organizations, that's usually the crux of what they do. And so I really try to make sure that their grant making processes allow them to show up just as they want to show up as a grant maker, right? That their grant making is reflective of their values. Mm. So if, for example, they're saying, oh, you know, we're very innovative, we're risk-taking, but it's taking them four months, five months to get funding out of the door, that's not really lining up. And so I step in to work with them to understand why that is and Mm. see if we can streamline it and get those things to align. And then the third part, of the lens is really around organizational design, asking questions around how the insides of that organization are actually working or the different departments talking to each other. Do you have the right capacity to do the work? Are the right people sitting in the right seats? Are the roles and responsibilities clear? And really working with organizations and their leaders to answer those questions in a good way. And so how I got interested in doing this work, this what I call this back office work, and I'm really passionate about it, is... I can't tell I, <laughs> <laughs> I spent a lot of time when I was at the Open Society Foundations, which is George Soros's philanthropy, as well as uh, Dalio Philanthropies, which is Ray Dalio's family philanthropy. I spent a lot of time building out these organizations and their infrastructure so that they could do their best work. With the Open Society Foundations, it was a very different scale, right? You're dealing with an organization that has many different entities within it, 
that really spans all regions of the world. Like they do grant making all over the world. And when I stepped into that role, I spent a lot of time working with programs that were trying to get funding out to organizations and individuals in different parts and regions of the world that were under different regulatory regimes, really complicated regimes. And how are we able to do that in a good way? How are we able to do that quickly? So I spent a lot of time thinking through grant-making processes, what that could look like, and supporting their work. Because without that infrastructure, no matter how good your programmatic work is, it will eventually collapse. If you show me an organization that is doing good programmatic work, if you show me their infrastructure and we can strengthen it, it will be doing outstanding work, mm-hmm. right? So they're part and parcel of the same thing. And what I was finding is that there was a huge separation between the two. And then I really tried to bring infrastructure to support that programmatic work. And I found that I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I did it, you know, I had a focus on the United States. Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and the Caribbean. And I was working with different parts of the foundation in those regions and really enjoying the work. Mm -hmm. I then started to work with the programs that were spinning off from the Open Society Foundations and becoming standalone entities. Mm -hmm. And um, once I started working with them, I started to help them operationalize, set up their boards, set up their operations, and make sure that they were really poised for success. And I kept doing it and realized I really like this problem solving, just bringing that legal experience and the legal expertise to beer. And I wanted to think about how I could continue to do that in a good way where I had the operations on one hand mm-hmm. and I had the legal piece on the other. And how could I marry them? And that's when the opportunity at Value of Philanthropies came up where I did essentially the same thing, but on a different scale. Mm -hmm. And through it all, I was looking at governance. I was looking at grant making, and I was essentially looking at organizational design. And, you know, as I mentioned, I have two little girls. And there was one day I was just sitting at my desk and I was marking up this agreement. And I just said, you know what? Like, I love what I'm doing. I don't want to mark up this agreement. I don't want to be, quote, the lawyer in the room where I'm Mm -hmm. just doing the markup. I wanted to really focus on the structuring and I wanted, I liked the fact that I could read the agreement and I understood what it said and I had the ability to mark it up, but I didn't want to have to be the person that was tasked to do it. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, you know, I guess you have two options. You could go find a place where I have a ton of staff under me, where they're the ones doing the markup and I'm not the person that's tasked with that. Or what I ended up doing was thinking, what would it look like if I went out on my own? And I could do this kind of work, the kind of work that I love to do, that I'm really good at. How could I do that for the kinds of clients that I want to work with? How could I make a difference on my own? What could that look like? And how could I spend more time with my daughters while doing that? Mm -hmm. And that's when I thought of Build Up Advisory Group. And then we launched in February. Wow. And so, you know, I love the mashup of where your wisdom and knowledge kind of meet your passion, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I feel that energy in you. This series that we have for the month of September, where we're featuring you as part of several partners and key roles within the campaign for Black Male Achievement. And my dear brother, Sean Dove, said, hey, you got to talk to Nick, (laughs) right? You got to talk to Nick. So I want to pick your brain for just a second about what Black Male Achievement means to you. Mm Mm-hmm. I think Black male achievement means the celebration of Black boys and men and recognizing how amazing they are. 
mm-hmm. right? And putting that at the forefront of the conversations we are having about society, about how we can improve, how we can get better, that that's always part of our conversation. Right. And so when I think of Black male achievement, I really want it to just, I want everyone to think of Black male achievement as achievement, right? If there is Black male achievement, then everyone is achieving, mm. right? It's yeah. not just, oh, it's for them. You have to make sure that they're doing okay. No, we have to make sure that we're doing okay. Yes. And in order to ensure that we are doing okay, we have to make sure that there is, in fact, Black male achievement. And so that when I think of that phrase, it has a, it's very powerful and there's a lot of hacking that comes with it, but that's what it means to me. Mm-hmm. Have you found that, and you know, I was thinking about this earlier when you were talking about kind of the infrastructure design, are you able to help organizations kind of in this space yeah. look at, you know, their organizational systems and design and kind of rethink some of what they're doing to be more efficient and effective? Yes, yes. That's exactly what we do and how we work with leaders in this space. I think like many nonprofit organizations, what I usually find is that you have very smart, charismatic leaders at the helm of these organizations, and they're doing amazing work, hard work, tireless work, right? And they're doing it without a lot of support, without a lot of capacity. And what that eventually means is that they're doing it without a lot of infrastructure behind them. And that could be because of funding, that could be because they're focused on the programmatic outcomes and the work, and they're not really focused on their financial management or the governance, or if they're making grants, how that process is working as long as it's you know working and getting funds out the door. And so I have a lot of conversations and work with leaders to understand the importance of infrastructure and how it can support their programmatic outcomes. And if they are achieving at a certain level without the infrastructure, imagine what you could do once your infrastructure is robust and solid. It's like building a house, right? If you have a house where you're building it and someone says, hey, I think your foundation is not that steady. I can go in and I can, you know, build it on, you know, I'm going way down the analogy I don't know too much about. I was going to say bedrock. I don't know if you can build a house on bedrock, but you get my <laughs> right? <laughs> like you want it really sturdy. And yeah. if someone can come in and say, listen, your foundation is right now on sand, but I can make it super sturdy. I can reinforce the walls. I can reinforce the seams and I can make this beautiful house a mansion and actually make it sustainable it's a no-brainer, right? And so we start to work together in that way. And, and I really enjoy it because what you're doing is you're just making, you're making outcomes for the people that are receiving services or resources from them even better, mm. right? And so that's how I spend a, a lot of my time with folks in this space. I love it. I love it. So in preparing for this conversation, you had shared with me that being relational drives business. Mm-hmm. And I'd love for you to share, you know, what that means, right? To be relational in business and share with us why that matters. Yeah, I think that, you know, particularly in law and other service-based professions, we tend to move on a transaction by transaction basis. Like someone comes to you and says, hey, can you do X? You do X, you get paid, you go away. Then someone comes back and says, hey, can you do Y? You do Y, you get paid and so on and so on. 
And I think that when someone's coming to you for X and Y or A and B, there's spaces in between those transactions. And in between those transactions, in those spaces, I think are where your clients and where organizations are most vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. That's where they have the need. They're coming to you with an ask, but in between those asks are where they're probably most vulnerable, where they're weakest and where they need the most support. And if you're not asking questions about what's happening in between transactions, if you're not providing that level of support in between those transactions, I think you're missing out on a huge part of your relationship with your client and a huge part of the service that you can Mm -hmm. provide to your clients. Right. And so I think that when you have the experience and you have the expertise to say, Hey, I know you've come to me with X, let's actually dial back and try to understand why are you coming to me with X? Why are you coming to me with Y? And we can talk about what's happening in between those transactions. It's a better outcome for your client. It's better support. It's better service. And I think that's really the reason that people keep coming back to you. I don't think it's because you're the best at, you know, this particular thing. I think there is a level of competence that you need to have in order to work with people. But most people, once they see that you have that level of competence, they don't care whether or not you're the greatest. They care about how you relate to them and how they relate to you. And that's, I think, why they keep picking you why they want to work with you, why they refer you to other people, because they feel supported and they yeah. feel like you are a resource. And I think yeah. you can only get there if you're relational. Yeah. People remember how you make them feel, right? That's right. That's yeah. what they remember. You made this comment also about the importance of expertise and it really moved mm-hmm. me, right? That yeah. we're encouraging people to just get going without any appreciation for the critical role that expertise plays. Yeah. Talk to us about why that's dangerous. I think it's so dangerous. I think we are in this space where people, you know, everything is fast. You need Mm -hmm. an answer to something. People like, just Google it. You say, hey, I think I I want to fix my car. They're like, hey, did you YouTube it? I bet you can find it on YouTube and fix your car (laughs) yourself. We're in that era where it's like, just do it yourself, just get it done. And I'm hearing a lot of advice, which is, well, you know a little bit more than someone else, you can go teach them, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess that's technically true that you know a little bit more than someone else and so they could possibly learn something from you. But I think that there's a huge difference between knowing a little bit more Mm -hmm. and having deep expertise in an area. Because again, it goes back to being relational. You're not able to talk intelligently and be a full support to a client in between transactions when you have no idea what the next transaction could be. You don't even know what's happening in that space. Mm-hmm. Because all you've done is that one thing that's a little bit more than what your client knows themselves. And so while you might be able to provide transaction level support, you're not able to provide that holistic type of support that I think that they would benefit from. And so this encouraging of, hey, you know a little bit more, why don't you just go off and do it? Well, on the one hand, I like the confidence that that brings for people where they can step into a space where they probably wouldn't have stepped into before because they didn't have that confidence. I think it should also be met with a lot of humility. Like, I don't know necessarily what I'm doing. I have lots of other questions. And to be upfront about that and to approach it that way and to recognize that expertise is the thing that steps into the gaps and provides holistic support to a client and provides that client with a meaningful experience. Yeah. You know, I think in a lot of Jamaicans not agreeing with you, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, 
I'm dying not to laugh because I'm like, I'm thinking of so many Jamaicans that like, no, man, come, I'll fix you. (laughs) We'll figure it out. (laughs) Right, right. But, you know, I always, people always say it, right? And you're like, no, I guess you can kind of get by. And I think it gets real clear very quickly when you use it in terms of a doctor, right? Like you go to a doctor and you know, you're like, hey, doctor, I think something's wrong with my elbow. And the doctor, the person you think is a doctor is like, well, you know, actually, not really a doctor, but I've been Mm -hmm. watching a lot of videos where (laughs) I have learned how to reset elbows and, you know, I can really help you out. I think, I I think you, at that point, you're like, you know what? No, right. I'm not going to actually work with you. The same thing if you meet a doctor who's like, you know, I've done this surgery once, but I'm willing to try it out on you. Mm-hmm. Like, I think then it gets a lot clearer where people start to say, okay, wow, like there is a huge difference between someone who's read a lot about something and yeah. someone who has read a lot plus done a lot of something. I just think it brings, it up levels the client experience. Yeah. As we get set to wrap up, I'd love for you to maybe share some insights, right, Nick, on the roles mm-hmm. that we can begin playing to support nonprofits and projects mm-hmm. that are serving on to serve communities, especially those that are led by people of color that mm-hmm. are not probably not getting the funding that they need to create a social change that they envision. Right. I think there are a few ways and I'll, I'll highlight a couple. One is if you are in a grant making organization or you are or have access to an organization that makes grants to organizations, then put organizations that are focused on under-resourced communities, particularly those organizations that are led by people of color on your radar, right? Mm -hmm. Allow them to be able to tell their own stories and Mm -hmm. not have you or the organization step in to tell their story for them, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking that you're doing it better. So I would say, one, make sure that you're being deliberate about working with these organizations and really seeking out leaders of color because they historically do not receive the level of funding that other organizations receive. I think a second way is to look at capacity building. So one of the affiliated fiscal sponsor of Build Up Advisory Group is Build Up Inc. And so I'm president of that nonprofit fiscal sponsor. And what Build Up Inc. does is we create capacity or help build the capacity of leaders of color and projects and organizations that are supporting under-resourced communities. And so our focus is on leaders of color and how we can provide that level of support. And we're different from many fiscal sponsors in that we really approach it holistically. So we're not just saying, hey, we'll help you out with your accounting and your legal and some of the grants that are being made. We're saying, how do you as a project, as a leader, how do you get the support that you need in order to step away from Build Up Inc. after sponsorship and be able to contribute meaningfully to this Mm -hmm. sector? How do you step away from a fiscal sponsor and be able to stand up independently and on your own in a very good way and be able to serve your community and be present in the sector? And so that, with that focus, we look at how do we support leadership development, human resources in terms of retention, engagement of staff, board development, governance. We really want to make it so that when an organization, a project, or a leader leaves Build Up Inc., they're even stronger than when they first Starting. arrived. Mm. 
Nick, I love in this conversation, girl. I got to make sure I cover a couple more questions for you. Our Blaze Nation, we love affectionately call our community our Blaze Nation. What kind of books would you recommend that we add to our fall queue here? Yes. Okay. So I would say um, there's two of them. One is, I read a ton of business books at this point, but um, one is The E-Myth Revisited by love Michael it. Gerber, right? Yeah. And that's just because it's talking my language, my love language, which is yes. really that organizational infrastructure and making sure that your systems are set up in a good way. I think one key part of that book that's not talked about a lot is that it really does get at your why. Mm. So if you remember, Stephen, in that book, she's talking to the lead character, I think her name is Patty or Patsy, and she's asking her, what do you sell? And she says, I sell pies. And he says, no, what do you really sell? You know, there's lots of other pie shops all over the place. Why are people coming to you? Why do you want them to come to you? And she says, and she has to think about it. And she says, I sell home. I want people to leave with this feeling of home. And I think what that book does is when you're starting a business, you have to, you know, you're trying to get clients, you're trying to do your marketing, you're trying to do all those different things. But what you really should be chasing is that why. And that why is bigger than the money, right? The why is why did you get into this? You know, like for me, it's I want to create peace of mind, right? I want to create confidence in your structure that you can deliver on your mission. And so that's why I'm in it and everything follows from that. The second book I would highly recommend, I read it a long, long time ago, but I'm rereading it now, is Makes Me Want to Holler. By I heard of that one. Nate, yeah, by Nathan McCall. That okay. book is amazing. It's about coming of age as, you know, he's a young black boy growing up in a low income neighborhood and just all of the messiness and the beauty that comes with that and how he makes it, quote, to the other side and how his friends, some of his other friends have not and some have. And it just, it really captures very nicely what it is like growing up in a community of both beauty and mess and how those things come together to create magic. And I think when we talk about Black male achievement, it's from a lot of times it's from situations like that and from communities like that where Black male achievement is alive and well, despite the rhetoric and the messaging that we're told, Mm. right? And so I think that Makes Me Want to Holler is definitely a book that I would recommend people put on their list. I love it. Last question for you. What's one action our Blaze Nation should take this week that's going to help them to blaze their trail? Yes. I think you've got to lean into you. And I know people say that a lot, but I really think lean into you. Like in the morning, you affirm, I believe in me. I believe in my capabilities. I believe in my abilities. I believe in who I am. Because once you leave your home, your cocoon, your safety net, so to speak, and you go out into the world, there is going to be so many things that are trying to tear you down from that and pull you away from that. And so if you start your day saying, you know, exactly that, that you believe in you and you're leaning into you, I think it goes a very long way to when you are failing something and you have to recover, you have that affirmation at the start of the day. And when you come back home, I think you assess, how did I lean into me today? Like, where did I show up? And you pick out an actual, and you spend the time, you know, a couple of minutes to think, well, when I had that conversation, I think I did that well. And then you also point out when you didn't lean into yourself. When did you step away? When did you shy away and why? And just think about that. And it sounds like it would take a lot of time, but it doesn't. It's a few minutes. And I think that 
when you start your day and end your day that way, leaning into who you are, mm-hmm. it just, I think it paves a really good path for you in terms of where you want to go next. I love it. Love that. We'll definitely take note of that one as we head into the week. Before we wrap up, tell our community how we can stay in touch with you. Okay. So our website is buildupadvisory.com. I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Nick is building up. And you can also shoot me an email at hello at buildupadvisory.com. And if you're on LinkedIn, on LinkedIn under A. Nicole Campbell. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank appreciate you. It. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all that you do, Stephen. I really love this podcast. So thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm Steve Nehart, and you've been listening to the Trailblazers.fm podcast. If you're not yet doing so, consider following Trailblazers.fm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and feel free to connect with me over on LinkedIn. Whenever you're posting stories or social media posts about Trailblazers.fm, be sure to use the hashtag TBPod and hashtag MissionFuel. We'll be able to see you, and I'll be able to show some love. And in case you're not aware, our show notes for all our episodes can be found on our website over at tbpod.com. Now, if today was your first time listening, I just want to say big ups, enough respect for checking us out. You've made this Jamaican guy really happy that you're here with us today. And I'd love your help with keeping this black excellence flowing each and every week. So if you haven't yet subscribed, hop on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search trailblazers.fm and subscribe, rate, and review us there. Be sure to browse through some of our past episodes. There are more than 150 published episodes now. And a little something is out there for everyone to help keep the knowledge flowing. We grow when you as part of our Blazer Nation community shares and invites your friends and family to listen to an episode you think might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories are going to be moved to make significant changes that have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday morning at 5 a.m. Eastern. Blazer Nation, go out today and find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. <laughs>